With incidents of serious injuries and deaths at the hands of police, cities face the cost of settlements and jury verdicts. Some of these cases mean millions of dollars paid. How do cities pay for this? What does it mean to city budgets? And how is it that someone is making money off of this? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your personal nerd, geek, and guide to all things in the criminal legal system and still somehow hanging on to that day job at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Now, since the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis in late May of 2020, with the killing of Rashard Brooks outside a Wendy's in Atlanta just weeks later, there has been one constant protests, very large, very diverse, and very sustained protests. Many more than we've seen over any issue since the civil rights era in the late 1950s and well into the 60s, along with the Vietnam War protests. But in the future, whatever else happens, we will see something else. Another word that begins with P, payments. Now, that may sound really awful and callous now when the pain is so raw and it is something that for sure is down the road, but it's not a new problem, not at all. That's how we know that there will be payment of settlements or verdicts in cases in which the families of the person killed or the person who is badly injured by the police uh, will be paid in response to a civil suit against the city and the police department for wrongful death or injury. And we know that with so few police officers charged with crimes and even fewer convicted, and some of them not even subject to any discipline or termination, lawsuits and then these payments really is the only kind of justice that so many people get. It's cold comfort to these families and people, for sure, but it's something. And while most payments are not large, sometimes the payments range into the millions of dollars. Here's some audio from CCX Media, CBS News, and PolitiFact, Wisconsin. Take a listen. Shot three times in the back by a Brooklyn Park police officer. Shua Yang will receive $2.8 million from the city to settle a police brutality lawsuit. Since 2003, Minneapolis has paid out $45 million in settlements. This year alone, Los Angeles has paid more than $6 million in settlements. Chicago, more than $14 million. New York, since 2015, more than a billion dollars. Looks at a claim that says Milwaukee has already paid about $22 million to settle police misconduct lawsuits. So how much money are we talking about? Now, like I said, while most of the settlements paid for police misconduct are not large, some of them are big. And there are so many of them all together that we are talking about real money. A few examples. In Chicago, from 2005 to 2015, over $1 billion paid out. In just the first eight weeks of the year 2018, the city of Chicago paid out 
$20 million. New York City pays the most. For example, in 2017 alone, it paid a record $302 million. In 2014 alone, the cities with the 10 largest police departments, Chicago, New York City, Los Angeles, and others, paid a combined $248 million, a quarter of a billion. Now, that's not small change, even for a big city with a substantial budget. How do cities manage to pay this money? What if they don't have it? And if they don't have it, where do they turn to get it? And is somebody making money off of this? Our guest today has written a great article that answers these questions. Brenton Mock is a journalist who writes for Bloomberg's CityLab.com. He covers many justice-related issues, particularly those related to law enforcement. Mr. Mock is also a former justice editor for Grist. He is now based in Pittsburgh, and he is our very first three-time guest here on Criminal Injustice. In episode 46, he talked to us about his article about the Department of Justice's deep misunderstanding of many urban communities, especially communities of color. New data he brought proved that they were not anti-police, but instead supportive of police and willing to help officers improve public safety. In episode 94, he discussed the psychological spillover effects of police violence on African Americans. Today, we'll discuss his recent City Lab piece about the costs of police violence. It's called How Cities Offload the Cost of Police Brutality. We have a link to it up on our website. Our interview is being recorded on Zoom, and if there are any boops or beeps, uh, those are all my fault. And we have a little thunderstorm brewing outside, so please excuse any extraneous noise. Journalist Brenton Mock, welcome back to Criminal Injustice. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Feels like home at this point. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, You know, uh, I spoke in the introduction about uh, the millions, even billions of dollars involved in the settlement and the verdicts that come out of police violent, three, two, one, out of police violence cases in cities all over the country. Now, you look at that, and I bet one thing people might wonder is, you know, is this just, is this kind of money just from one big horrific case, or are we seeing a pattern? Does this recur in cities? I think it depends. Um, When you look at Minneapolis, for instance, um, I think that the figure is something like they, they paid out maybe $25 million over the past 10 years um, to settle police violence lawsuits. But a huge portion of that um, $20 million alone came from one suit, you know, and then the other uh, lawsuits, uh, they were settled for a range uh, of, you know, thousands of dollars to like maybe a million dollars or so. Um, But Minneapolis is one situation. I mean, you have Chicago, um, which has increasingly been paying out, tens and hundreds of millions millions of dollars. Yeah. Um, And going into considerable debt to pay those off. Um, And then you can even look locally here in Pittsburgh. Um, As you well know, there's been a considerable number of of payoffs here. I don't think any as large as $20 million. Um, 
but uh, you have the case involving Antoine Rose where there was a payout there, which, you know, for more or less may have bankrupted the entire police department uh, to the right. point where it doesn't even exist. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it's a range, but, you know, the costs are definitely going up, um, especially as uh, cities are, and, and, and actually more as taxpayers and residents are becoming more aware of, um, you know, how police are able to kind of move with impunity um, and they inflict violence against citizens. Absolutely. Now, one, one question I know people ask is, look, if the cities are paying out all this money, why does it not seem to impact police behavior? Wouldn't that just be a direct result? And we find, of course, that these problems persist. They're long-term patterns. Why does the payout of these big damages not change what police do? Well, it, because it's not the police. It's not the police paying for it. it, it if, if it's coming from the city, um, then, you know, the police department doesn't have to actually feel the pain. Uh, the police officer who did the killing or who committed the violence definitely doesn't have to um, feel any pain. Um, you know, if, if anything, what we've seen is that police departments have, have uh, their budgets have increased over the years, steadily increased over the years. Even the ones who have been, uh, you know, who have histories of, of police violence against black people. Um, so I, I think that that is a fair question. And what residents um, should, you know, what people should probably be asking is, why is the city covering up for police? Why is the city paying for the sins of police officers? Um, and of course, when we say, why is the city paying for it? Of course, we're saying, why are we paying for it? Why are they paying for it? Because it's coming out of uh, taxpayer money, whether it's a situation where the city is paying for it, for paying for these settlements out of a, uh, a general fund, or if the city is taking out debt, you know, taking out a bond. Yes. So uh, that's, you know, that's really something to keep in mind. Uh, and, and you've got a great example in this article. Here's a situation. You mentioned Minneapolis. Of course, we're all looking at Minneapolis now. And Minneapolis actually had a chance to do something really good um, and to improve uh, its record on police violence. Uh, you have this really strong example of how that was actually defeated in Minneapolis. Talk about that for a minute. Yeah. So, the, yeah, the city itself, the city council itself, um, you know, it years ago, back in 2016, I believe, they came up with a, a, a suite of reforms to the police officer for police departments in terms of what they can and cannot do when uh, approaching a suspect or when apprehending a suspect. Uh, one of the main things that they proposed was to get rid of um, the policy that basically allows police to put chokeholds or, or kneel um, on a suspect. And, uh, you know, these reforms were just never taken up. And uh, it's it's quite an example of, you know, how if these things were kind of taken care of on the front end, if these kinds of police tactics were, were outlawed, uh, then we probably would, would not have had the situation that we had. Uh, with George Floyd um, and all of the, you know, the chaos that has ensued since. You know, that's that's really it right there. Do you want do you want to fix it on the front end or pay on the back end? And so many cities have just been content to pay later and not fix it, or they have faced opposition to fixing it. So let's let's turn very just real frankly 
to the money. And that's so much of what your piece explores. Uh, you talk about how cities um, uh, pay this sort of money, uh, and it's not the way that maybe you or I would do it. We might go out and get an insurance policy. They do something called self-insurance. What is that? So, yeah, in Minneapolis, uh, there is a, a fund um, that the city government has uh and all of the rec- all of the various city agencies and departments pay a certain percentage of their budgets into this fund, um, and this fund is used for you know for a number of different kinds of settlements. But it, but it's also the 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 fund that the city has been using to pay off the police settlements for violence in the, in its police department. Um, it, it, it's an example of you know self indemnification um, where again the city is paying for the recklessness of police. Um, and you know, whether that's a better idea than taking out a bond or going into further debt to pay for this is one matter, but at the end of the day, either way, it's, it's taxpayers. Right. Let's just be clear about what's going on here. The city is creating a fund and it dips into this fund when it needs to pay a settlement or a jury verdict in a police violence case and some other kinds of damages. Um, and it doesn't have to go out and buy an insurance policy. Now, you and I can't do that. If we decide we don't want to have car insurance, we can't just say, look, I'll cover it myself. We have to get insurance, don't we? I mean, even under Obamacare, I mean, we have to get health insurance. Um, yeah, we, we, don't, we don't have the option to opt out of that. And there's a reason for that, right? The, the reason why we buy insurance is that we are all buying into this collective risk pool, right? When, when you go out in your car, there's a risk that either you're going to hit somebody or they're going to hit you. And even with health, um, you know, there's a situation where we can all get sick. We can all get injured. We can get a disease. We have to go to the hospital to get that treated. The hospital's costs are really large. Somebody has to pay for that. So as a way of protecting, a hospital from going out of business or as a way of protecting uh, people who are driving out in the street who may not have the cost to cover when they're in a, a, a car accident, we all buy into this risk pool for the insurance companies to, to cover these costs so that we don't all bankrupt each other, basically. But we don't have those kinds of protections with, uh, with police, um, at least not in, these, in, in the situations where the city will pay for it straight from their funds. Um, basically, the city is just passing the risk back to us. Um, you know, the risk pool, especially if you're black, the risk pool is being just being out in the streets and coming in, coming into contact with a police officer. Um, and in that regard, you know, if black people are attacked, injured, shot, maimed, or any kind of way by a police officer, and that police officer is sued and there's some kind of settlement, you know, we as taxpayers end up paying for the victimization of our own people. And that's a bitter pill right there. You know, the other thing that insurance does, of course, is if, I'm, if I have car insurance and I have to have it, and if I do lots of reckless stuff like get in accidents or I get a lot of speeding tickets, my premiums go up. And that's supposed to hurt. And that might even change my behavior. If a city is not subject to those kind of pressures... We've already discussed how, you know, the payment is really external to them. The city is paying it, not the police department. Uh, you don't have any of those market-based pressures either to maybe change your conduct. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's almost like the whole behavioral economics thing doesn't apply to police officers because they can go and act with impunity. I mean, before we even get to whether they have to pay or be insured for whatever lawsuits, um, you know, might come from violence, they're just not punished in general. Period. You know, they. I mean, there a lot of police officers with violent with violence on their records are working for police departments right now and they in many, in many cases they have several infractions um on their records that's not something i could do i mean i'm a journalist i, I work with other journalists if i went around like punching and like you know shooting other journalists i mean i'm, I'm gonna get fired first time and right. i'm never gonna work again um but they but but we don't but you know police officers don't they kind of operate in a in a world of impunity where these kinds of things uh, don't change their behavior, they don't have to pay for it. Um, when it happens, you know, the city, the city will pay for, for their um, misgivings and misdeeds uh, for them. Uh, so no, there's, there's no pressure almost from anywhere to get a police officer to change uh, their behavior. Okay. So staying with the money, the the city creates a fund, the self-insurance fund, or they just pay it out whenever they need to pay it out. Um, suppose they don't have the money or they've committed in their budgets to something else. And by the way, if Chicago has spent a billion dollars between 2005 and 2015, like they did on these settlements, I mean, I'm just thinking of all the parks and all the schools and all the things they could have, you know, they could have done with that money in that city. Uh, That's not there. And they don't really have uh, a lot of extra cash on the books. What they've begun to do is something else. You've mentioned a couple of times going into debt or using debt. And this brings us to this subject of police brutality bonds. Talk about that. Yeah, police brutality bonds is a term uh, created by an organization called ACRE, uh, which is the Action Center on Race and the Economy. And uh, and what they do is they look at uh, basically at municipal systems and how uh, racial inequities kind of uh, are, are implemented through those municipal systems. And one way that that happens is when is when cities um, take out bonds. Um, to pay off uh, police violence, uh, pay off police uh, police lawsuits for uh, police violence. Um, so you mentioned Chicago. Chicago in general is one of the most overextended cities um, when it comes to debt in America. Um, but a large part of that debt is from the bonds that they've taken out to pay for police violence. Uh, and this is not like something from the past few years. This is something that's, that goes back decades, decades and decades of police corruption, violence, killings, cover-ups of the killings, as we saw with uh, what former Mayor Rahm Emanuel did with the police killing of Laquan McDonald. Um, we're talking mega millions of, 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 of bonds taken out to pay for um, all of this violence and with, and with little return, right? Because if, if there's any police department that has seen negative improvement, um, it's Chicago, you know, it, 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 we just don't see improvement there. Um, but the residents are paying for it through these bonds. Let's take a quick break here. We're with journalist Brenton Mock. 
we're discussing his article in citylab.com on the offloading of the costs of police brutality. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more. Everyone wants to keep their home and family safe. Whether it's from a break-in, a fire, flooding, or a medical emergency, Simply Safe Home Security delivers award-winning 24/7 protection. With Simply Safe, you don't just get cameras and sensors, you get the best professional monitors in the business. They've got your back day and night ready to send police, fire, EMTs, whatever you need when you need them most, straight to your door. Now, when my family had the job of selling our family home after it was empty, we knew we needed a security system we could count on. My brother, the electrician, the guy who's the most tech savvy of all of us, he recommended we go with Simply Safe, and boy, am I glad we did. It was easy, it was affordable, and it was good. It performed, and we were safe. Simply Safe protects every inch of your home. You can set it up yourself in just 30 minutes. It's really easy. Then Simply Safe's professionals take over, monitoring your home 24/7 and ready to send help the moment they get an alarm. Plus with Simply Safe, there's no long-term contract. There are no hidden fees and no installation costs. Right now my listeners get a free home security camera when you purchase a Simply Safe system at simplysafe.com/injustice. You also get a 60-day risk-free trial, so there's nothing to lose. Visit simplysafe.com/injustice for your free security camera today. That's simplysafe S I M P L I S A F E that's simplysafe.com/injustice Hi everyone, David Harris here with you on Criminal Injustice and we have three-time guest Brenton Mock. He's a journalist, uh, writes for citylab.com among other outlets and we're discussing his June 4th, 2020 article about how police departments and cities offload the cost of police brutality. Now, before the break, we were talking about the idea of financing the costs, the cost of settlement and verdicts in these cases, financing them through issuing bonds. And let's just, for those of us who aren't of the finance world, let's make sure we all understand what a bond is. Because we hear about municipal bonds. We hear about, you know, a bond issue for a school district. Is it the same kind of a thing? I mean, all, you know, there's all different kinds of bonds. But but principally, yes. Um, it's basically the city is going to uh, a bank or some financial institution saying we need X million dollars in order to, yes, build a school or repair a bridge, or in this case, or what we're talking about, uh, pay off these police settlements. And the reason why you take out a bond, uh, which is something that larger cities usually do in these situations, um, the reason why they would take out a bond for police settlements is usually because they have some kind of revenue shortage themselves. Um, and the research from uh, Acre and other organizations showed that um, the, the the dependency on bonds for paying for uh, 
police uh, violence settlements um, have increased over the past 10 years, basically since the, uh, the financial crisis, uh, the finance crisis of 2008, 2009, uh, when a lot of cities were on the brink of basically bankruptcy. Um, so cities have increasingly over the last 10 years have been uh, depending on, uh, you know, issuing debt, issuing bonds, these police brutality bonds in order to pay for uh, police violence. So they, they issue bonds, and the way a bond works is basically the city is borrowing money, millions and millions, and in order to borrow money, you got to pay interest. And so they are paying somebody, the bondholders, the people who buy the bonds, they are paying them a rate of interest for this loan. And that's one of the ways that the cost of these things is even greater than the dollar amounts of the settlement. And somebody is making money here. I mean, that in itself, I, I just find this concept offensive at some level. I have to admit, I mean, I know if, you, you know, if I'm going to lend somebody money, I do expect interest. But the idea that cities should be going into the marketplace where they're going to pay for the ability to essentially finance the payment uh, for the payment of police misconduct and violence. There is something so fundamentally wrong with that. Right. And the, and the way that the bond is paid back is, is from taxpayer funds. It's, 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 you know, it's either, you know, from some um, fee that is, uh, or a tax that is a tax. It can be a sales tax. It can be a property tax. Any money that's going into, you know, that the city is collecting from taxpayers, that's what's going to pay off the bonds. But also, as you mentioned, um, on the on the receiving end, uh, on the bondholder end, um, the fine, you know, not only are they collecting interest on the amount that they've loaned to the city, but there's all kinds of other uh, fees that are attached to this, um, you know, from the financial institution, uh, the issuer of the bond, or um, you know, wh whoever it is that is putting the money up, underwriting the bond. Um, so there's several, there's all different kinds of uh, costs that go into this beyond the principal amount of, of the actual amount um, borrowed. And so every, you know, there are a lot of people profiting off of this. You know, Wall Street is profiting off of it. The bank is, is profiting off of it. Um, whoever the bondholder is, and, and frankly, a lot of bondholders, you know, don't know. Um, what 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 bond what's what all of the elements of what's in their bond so they may not even know that they're paying for police violence and and part of the campaign that acre is waging that i reported on is uh they've been writing letters to the bondholders to let them know to say like hey did you know that this bond that you're holding uh includes money that went to pay for uh police violence against black people um and i think that you know and we we urge you to to say something you know, to the financial work, uh, institution um, that's issued a bond about this. You know, that's so interesting This that really they're taking a page from other kinds of activism. I know that at my university, University of Pittsburgh, there has been uh, a sustained campaign to get the university to divest from companies that do fossil fuels. Uh, it's a climate change thing. And there have been other kinds of campaigns like this, too. So they're adopting that same tactic. Um, you have these these issuers of the bond, the underwriters of the bond making money. You have the bond buyers or bond holders 
getting interest, and maybe without knowing it, but this kind of campaign will make it more transparent, one hopes. Uh, do you think that citizens are aware of this? What kind of transparency is there for the citizen who is not only now paying as they would for self-insurance, that's taxpayer money, but now it has to be financed like it's a car loan or something? Um, you know, there, there's no good data on this. Um, but, you know, I would venture to say that, you know, I would venture to say in the past few months, because of all of the, uh, the, the campaigns of protests against police and, uh, you know, the campaigns to defund the police and divest from police, there probably are a lot more people today who are aware uh, that their taxpayer funds or their family's taxpayer funds are going to pay off uh, or pay for uh, police violence. Um, but, you know, up until, I don't know, maybe Ferguson, uh, or maybe even going before that, you know, the Rodney King verdict back in, uh, you know, 1990, in the 90s, you probably have very few people who knew how any of this was paid for. Um, you know, a lot of people probably just think that the police departments themselves pay uh, these settlements, or even that the, that the individual police officer has some skin in the game. Um, so I, you know, I would venture to say that it has been a surprise in, over the past few years to find that actually, no, the police officer who killed this person or who shot this person or ran into this other person with their car, uh, you know, or did whatever damage they did, they did not likely have to pay anything um, for that. Well, that maybe that's a good place for us to circle all the way back. What about the idea, and you talked a little bit about this in your piece, the idea of having requiring um, police departments and maybe police officers themselves to carry some type of insurance. Um, the uh, other professions do it. I mean, doctors need malpractice insurance. Lawyers have to carry malpractice insurance. Um, this is a debated point, I know, in some of the literature. What's your take on that? Um, you know, the, as to whether an insurance company uh, would uh, insure an individual police officer given the, the very high level of, uh, of risk involved there. Um, I don't know, from what I understand with the research, there are very few, if any, insurance companies, very few insurance companies that will insure a police officer at the individual level. Um, there are some insurance companies that cover police departments. Um, and in that, in, in, in those situations, um, and usually it's more the city, but, but in some cases it's the police department itself. Uh, but I think in those situations, that's, that's probably, you know, that's probably the right thing to do. Um, you know, if, if there is police violence involved, the family wants justice uh, for, uh, you know, the victim. And um, sooner or later, that's gonna come to a civil lawsuit. And uh, if there's a settlement or if there's a verdict involved, um, you know, the, the, the price of life should always be optimized, right? And no one should collect pennies for losing a son or a daughter or a father. Um, but if you were to pin that entire cost on an, a police department, let alone an individual officer, they probably would not be able to pay and they could claim bankruptcy or, or find some kind of way to get out of paying it. The reason why they sue the cities is because the cities are the ones that have the money. Um, you know, they have the millions of dollars to be able to pay 
the cost that it that that would be equivalent to justice for 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 he or she who, who was killed. Um, but I but you know there is an argument for a, a kind of a hybrid system where uh, the city and the police department and maybe even a police officer share the cost of the insurance. Um, and I believe it's a it's it's a UCLA law professor Joanna Schwartz. Yes. who herself she she recommends that uh that there, there there should be this shared insurance between the city and the police but if an individual officer is involved in uh, a case of injuring or killing a citizen and he or she is sued um um and there's money that has to be paid out for a settlement or a verdict um which leads to an insurance company to raise the deductible or the premium for that insurance policy, um, then that individual officer should be responsible for paying the difference uh, between what the deductible or the premium was and what it is now that the price is going up. In the same way, as you mentioned earlier, as you know, if we were in a car accident, um, my insurance deductible and premium, my insurance costs would go up um, and I would be responsible for paying that. Um, you know, what, what Professor Schwartz is saying is that the the individual officer would be responsible for whatever increase in costs based off of reckless policing. And I think that, you know, that sounds like a pretty sound idea. I do believe police officers should have considerable skin in the game. Um, and, you know, and if, if, if the cost of insuring themselves becomes prohibitively high because they can't get their act together, um, then they should probably consider a different profession. Maybe you're not cut out for policing, you know, but there should be a tax. <laughs> I mean, there should be some kind of cost on, uh, again, on reckless policing and on, and on police violence and the officers should have to feel some of that pain. That's Brenton Mock. He writes for CityLab.com. That's a Bloomberg publication. You can find it and you should track everything this man writes. We thank you for being with us on Criminal Injustice. His article called How Cities Offload the Cost of Police Brutality uh, is up in the form of a link on our website. Thanks a lot for being my guest. Yes, thank you. Thanks again for having me. it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And this story of a lawyer behaving badly from the legal profession blog, the Pennsylvania Legal Intelligencer, Law 360, and the ever-dependable ABA Journal News Online concerns lawyer Neil Mitten of Huntington Valley, Pennsylvania. Lawyer Mitten was a member of the law firm of Gay, Chacker, and Mitten for 38 years. But at some point, the firm modified his employment agreement. Under the new arrangement, Mitten would be entitled to receive a share of fees received on his cases, as is common. But according to the ABA Journal, under the new arrangement, quote, only after aggregate fees by the firm for the year exceeded $300,000, close quote. This effectively amounted to a pay cut for Lawyer Mitten, working the same amount 
he would probably earn less. Now, one can easily understand why Lawyer Mitten or any lawyer might not like this, and we don't really know what it was that sparked this new arrangement by the firm. So what did Lawyer Mitten do? Did he ramp up his workload and work harder so that he could make up the difference? Did he do more to bring in clients? Did he perhaps attempt to renegotiate? No, he didn't. Instead, he took the cases he had and that came in to him and told the firm that no settlements or earnings were going to be forthcoming in those cases, and the cases were effectively junk and would be abandoned. But these were lies, and instead of abandoning the cases, Mitten referred the cases to other lawyers outside the firm, under agreements that said he, Lawyer Mitten that is, would receive a referral fee of over one-third, sometimes as much as 40% of any money collected. He made money this way, lots of it in fact, and did not tell his own firm, of course. Well, eventually it all came crashing down when the arrangements were discovered. Lawyer Mitten was facing bar misconduct charges, and at the end of June of 2020, he consented to his own disbarment. But as they say on those late-night TV commercials, wait, there's more, because what Lawyer Mitten did was not just a violation of lawyer ethics rules, and a fairly obvious one at that. It was also stealing and fraud because those clients and the resulting fees which came to well over three million dollars belong to his own firm not him and he took all of it that was enough to interest prosecutors and lawyer mitten will be a guest of the federal correctional system for a period of five years have a nice time out there counselor so you may be wondering why would one consent to one's own disbarment? Why not at least make the disciplinary council prove it? Well, one possibility is that they may have caught you so red-handed that, well, what's the point? The second is that, where you're headed, there's really no opportunity to practice law anyway. Or perhaps it's both. That's this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, and that wraps up another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't already, and share us, please, all over social media. Review us. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website. That's criminalinjusticepodcast.com for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Well, why don't you call in and ask Dave? That number is 412-407-3389. Leave us your first name where you're calling from and your brief question. That's 412-407-3389. Also, give us some contact info. We won't share that. You can also write out your question by going to the website and clicking on Ask Dave. And you can put your question there. I'll see it right back to you, and we may put it on the podcast. Remember, we're listener-supported. We'd really like to have your support, and thank you to those who have done that. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time.
Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Rollerson. Find show notes and past episodes at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. <laughs>